yeah, 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 you're right about that. Um, <laughs> you, you threw me for a loop. Hold on. I'm Damian Willis, <laughs> and this is the Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News, a podcast in which we attempt to pull back the curtain on our reporting process while diving deeper into some of the biggest stories of the week. In this week's episode, we're talking about the local economy as a number of interesting factors collide. On one hand, the nation's economy is shrinking as inflation and other factors drive up gas prices, creating a pinch at the pump and at the supermarket. Las Cruces certainly isn't immune to these large-scale factors, but... According to one economist we spoke to, we may be a little better insulated. We'll talk to Sun News reporter Algernon Damasa, who has followed several facets of this story quite closely. We'll talk about the state's recent legalization of the sale of recreational cannabis, the nationwide nursing shortage, and other factors. And finally, we'll talk to Meg Potter, the newest addition to our newsroom. Meg is a photojournalist or a visual journalist who just started last week. We'll talk about her experience, her motivation, her first week on the job and settling into life in a new city in the desert Southwest. First, Algernon, As always, we want to thank you for uh, taking the time to talk to us today. Happy to be here. America's economy kind of unexpectedly shrank in the first quarter of 2022, according to data from the Bureau of Economic Analysis that was released last Thursday. The uh, nation's gross domestic product, or, or GDP, which is kind of the broadest measure of economic activity, declined at an annualized rate of 1.4% from January to March. And that's kind of an abrupt reversal of the prior year's strong growth. One quarter does not a trend make, but it is certainly a warning sign for how the recovery is going. Economists say two straight quarters of declining growth meet one of the most commonly used definitions of a recession. And I think we're all old enough to remember that recessions are not fun. Now, overall, can you give us a sense of how things are looking closer to home? It's really hard to tell through this sort of forest of numbers what's actually happening. And there are different stories about what this recovery is looking like. Um, So New Mexico's journey through this has been particularly interesting because we are so dependent on the oil and gas industry for the revenue that pays for our schools and, and much of the other things that our state does. And in the pandemic period, we saw, of course, a tremendous crash uh, when demand dropped and fuel prices dropped and unemployment in the state spiked. And since then, we've been seeing a recovery in the oil and gas prices. And that industry has just seen a resurgence, which has 
allowed the state to do more things. But, uh, you know, what does the recovery look like for the working person, not just investors and not just these corporations? And, uh, you know, I spoke to uh, Chris Erickson. He's an economist at New Mexico State University. And, um, you know, he said that actually recovery in the Las Cruces area has uh has actually kept pace with the rest of the country as we try to find our way through this pandemic and through the 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 recession that started in 2020 and possibly as you mentioned we're, we might be looking at another recession soon and so you, know, the, you see these signs and you see this frequent comment uh that people make that nobody wants to work anymore nobody wants to work anymore but actually the reasons people have for staying out of the workforce as long as they have and are coming back uh with more uh discernment about pay and about working conditions really is a little bit more complex and nuanced than that. How so? Um, one of the things that, that Erickson told you, if I remember right, um, he, he basically said that just about anybody in New Mexico who wants a job uh, could probably find one right now. And this was um, about a month ago. He said that. Right. Um, what what sorts of things did you guys discuss? So, there is a job. Employers really need workers. They really want to hire people. And in a lot of industries, notably uh, service industries, hospitality, but also in areas like nursing, where there's just the greatest need for candidates, employers are stepping up their pay. They're stepping up uh, other benefits and incentives to get people to uh, come into the workplaces. Um, and they're also making some concessions on working conditions because that, as it turns out, is one thing that workers are pretty concerned about is what are the conditions under which um, I'll be working. Uh, data from New Mexico's Workforce Solutions Department indicated that uh, unemployment in some parts of the state, including the Las Cruces metro area, uh, is actually lower. Unemployment is actually lower than it was before the pandemic began, before the public health emergency. Um, and so states unemployment is still higher than the national rate. Uh, but in different parts of New Mexico, actually, um, there's robust hiring and, and people actually wanting to emerge from their homes and, and work. But they also want to know that the, that their wages are are fair, that they you know, that they don't want to be caught between multiple jobs while there's still a pandemic underway. They don't want to be working under unsafe conditions. Um, and so workers find themselves in a position in some industries where they can really I was going to say bargain, but even if they, if they even if they're not part of a union, like they're able to really talk to employers about the conditions under which they work. Now, there are some interesting trends, though. One thing is that pay is actually up. So average hourly wages have been trending upward over the past year. But it's also within this trend where the average number of hours has plateaued or even trended downward at times in recent years. And that 
It still seems to be the case. And, and so uh, that, that re- oh, I'm sorry. And that just reflects that employers are also having to make their own decisions in a very uncertain and dynamic environment where we may indeed be entering into another recession. But it is mainly the services where you're seeing this problem. But I'll give you another example. I guess it's not services. Um, I don't want to give you the name of the company because I'm not authorized to do it. But I had a conversation with the company down in Santa Teresa. And uh, it was in the industrial park, and they're seeking to expand by 500 employees, and they cannot find them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they uh, they uh, are having uh, real problems trying to get people to come out there, uh, and, and and there's lots of reasons why that might be. But one of the big ones is a uh, uh, lack of availability of affordable housing in the county. And uh, so if you're trying to hire people who are assembly workers, uh, these are good jobs. I'm not trying to say they're not good jobs. Sure. But, but, but they're, they're, you know, forty, $50,000 a year type of jobs. And if you don't have any affordable housing in the area for the workers who are going to take those jobs, that means you're commuting for El Paso or Las Cruces. And there's a lot of people who aren't willing to make that kind of commute for that, kind, for that, that sort of job. And so we see this kind of problem cropping up in a lot of different different aspects of the economy. Um, and so I, I think that most people who want a job can find a job right now. And, and I also will mention this, uh, one employer I was thinking about, they do have a strict no no drug policy, which means people have to be able to pass a drug test. Uh, and I think they're having problems with that also. And especially since marijuana is now legal in, in New Mexico, that might become more of an issue for people going forward. And we've seen big national uh, employers, I think, of places like Target and Verizon, some of whom have just recently boosted their their uh, entry level wages to like 20 bucks an hour in some cases. Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, and, and you know, it's not certain how far this goes. I mean, we're seeing we're seeing something like the marketplace really determining what the wages will be. And, uh, uh, you know, the bargaining position that workers have is very different right now. Speaking of jobs, the, the state's burgeoning cannabis industry, which opened up to adult use or recreational cannabis sales on April 1st, is uh, by some accounts projected to add about 11,000 jobs statewide. You've also been following that industry really closely. What have you learned about that? This is fascinating. I mean, this is really, it's it's not just that it's a newly legalized industry in cannabis, but it's also the debut of a very unique framework of regulations created for this purpose. Alcohol post-prohibition was not you know, was not legalized the way this has been in New Mexico. And so it's it's just it's a fascinating framework that's going to require it's going to require tweaking in subsequent legislative sessions. But so far, uh, sales have been robust. Some of that may be the effect of it being novel. The opening weekend of legal commercial sales of cannabis, we saw figures topping $5.2 million that first weekend. And sales have leveled off a little bit since then, but are still really strong. And so we don't know what the trends will be, whether sales of both medicinal and Adult use or recreational cannabis, the latter being what we can tax, will be sort of level off as the novelty wears off and 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 
and we're going to find who that core customer is, as well as what happens to prices and whether the price per ounce comes down low enough so that people will buy their cannabis from the regulated marketplace instead of um, on the proverbial street. Exactly. And you also talk, <laughs> you talk to, to several industry professionals about bud tenders. Let's talk about bud tenders. You kind of took a deep dive into that profession and the sort of skills it takes to be good at it. Do you want to start by kind of explaining what this is and then uh, what they're looking for in those types of positions? Sure. Plus, it's just fun to say bud tender, right? It's just a fun word to say. Um, so let's define the bud tender. The bud tender are the people who uh, greet you and sell you uh, your your cannabis products when you visit a commercial dispensary. And so uh, originally, bud tenders were people who worked in medical cannabis dispensaries, and they were the people you spoke to. You had your you had your enrollment card in the medical cannabis program. This is the person you would talk to about what your particular ailments were, and they would recommend products uh, that might help based on how the product is formulated, the different terpenes, the, 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 the components that various, are in the plant. Various strains. Various strains and, and what might help you. So really, they were serving the role of the ancient apothecaries of another era. Um, they're not doctors, but but they're expected to be very knowledgeable about the product and what effects um, it might have on an individual. And so this is a you know, this is I mean, baristas know a lot about coffee for sure, but really uh, bud tenders are expected to have some knowledge of the of the actual botany and the chemical properties of the plant. They're ambassadors for the product, and right now they are introducing cannabis to a whole new marketplace of customers who may or may not be familiar with cannabis at all. So really they're representing the plant, they're representing a range of products, and they're the face of this new industry, and a lot is riding on them in terms of whether this succeeds or fails. Here's Shannon Jaramillo, who does training for the commercial cannabis industry. She's based in Albuquerque, where she's the founder and CEO of Seedcrest. Well, and that's exactly it, is the, the, you know, tomorrow I'll be teaching these managers that they are the face of that dispensary, whether it's a, a neighbor being upset that that dispensary came into the neighborhood. And believe me, a lot of these places are trying to open and they are being, being inspected uh, willy-nilly by just neighbors not liking them being there, right? Yeah. And so the management team there really needs to understand, at the dispensary level, really needs to understand the regulations, how to interpret them, how to follow them, because they also, those regulations are going to shift on them. So they don't want to have, you know, be the face of an old regulation and then, you know, have somebody coming in and saying, wait a minute, what are you doing and calling them out? Now, a lot of that's going to happen just because of the nature of how they move those regs. But the bud tenders are, you know, individuals that are, the, the demographics of bud tenders are they're either, you know, baby boomer age or they're really young. 
And so we've got a lot of people coming in with not a lot of life experience, let alone medical field experience, and now, you know, serving cannabis uh, recreationally experience. So there is a major learning curve there. And people walking in the dispensary are expecting that they're going to have, you know, a knowledgeable butt tender. They're going to have someone knowledgeable in the store. So it has to stem from that management down, and it has to be a faithful, ongoing practice where they're updating the employees, they're staying in front of the employees, and they're updating them on all of these little things so that it's not biting them in the butt as they go, so to speak. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of pressure. It's not just a retail, you know, and, and retail in itself, Algernon, is very dangerous anyway, you know. In what ways is that different? And I mean, obviously, there are ways in which this is different than the person selling you a pair of shoes at the uh, local shoe outlet or sporting goods, you know? Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's 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 very personal. And I mean, you know, I, you know, you work in sales. Sales is always very personal. It's always about your relationship to different kinds of customers, different generations, different economic classes, all of that. I mean, sales is always personal. I think it's just that combination of having being really on point, knowing all the details about the product. Um, and it's a product that affects different people in, in many different ways. Um, but it's also uh, just kind of reflecting how this new kind of business presents itself, because frankly, the cannabis industry is overcoming generations of social stigma and criminalization in a way that shoes don't. Yeah, 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 you're right about that. Um, you you threw me for a loop. Hold on. <laughs> now, <laughs> that's true. That's true, Algernon. Uh, shoes don't don't really quite quite. Uh, they're not quite as stigmatized. Um, now, the the starting wages for for a bud tender uh, you reported recently were kind of in the fifteen dollar an hour ballpark. Yeah. Um, so, you know, $15 hourly wage is is not bad uh, as a as an entry point into this industry. But there's also it's also a very demanding industry. Um, you know, the customer service demand is very high. Um, no pun intended. Sorry, I got I, it's, it's, it's almost hard to avoid. It's hard to avoid. I really try to keep the cannabis puns out of my reporting and they just kind of fall on me like rain. Uh <laughs> But no, it's the customer service demands are very intense on on bud tenders and uh, even things that matter are, for instance, uh, you know, some of the customers that emerge into dispensaries are experienced cannabis buyers who maybe have never purchased it legally before. People who are completely new and just want to know what this is about. They're curious. They may have medical complaints that they want to address, or they may just have a vague curiosity about, I've heard this is pleasant and I'd like to try it. Uh, there are bud tenders who are kind of baby boomer in generation X age, but you also have that younger generation of bud tender. And uh, these things matter because, yeah, sales are personal. And there's also kind of a, a safety component, especially as places look at the possibility of perhaps staying open later. You kind of put yourself at risk that that maybe other retail outlets don't. Yeah, this is really interesting, Damien, because it's also 
reflects kind of the cultural shift that is happening about how we view cannabis as a commercial product because uh, bars stay open till, you know, into the wee hours, right? I mean, bars stay open very late at night and we've kind of accepted a world in which uh, people drink alcohol in public places, become inebriated, and sometimes behave poorly. They drive while they're intoxicated. There are car accidents. There are fights. Um, and we've just kind of accepted this. We don't like it. We don't approve of this, but we've just kind of accepted it as normal. And there's this terror around cannabis. And some of it, I mean, for, you know, for people working in the industry, there are legitimate security concerns around cannabis still. Uh, so opening later at night, creates certain security concerns and challenges that would need to be addressed. Many are, but there's also many are largely cash only businesses, right? Because banking services are very limited. Cannabis still remains uh, federally prohibited and that prevents a lot of banks from participating. Although there are some banks that are opening up to it. So there's a lot of cash flying around. There's, you know, it just, and there's, there's cannabis itself. And so there are some strict regulations around the security requirements for cannabis, but still, yeah, you don't want to be making a, a late night bank deposit with, 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 uh, a, you know, with the pound of, with a mound of cash. And so there are legitimate security concerns as well as just cultural fears around the influence of having a cannabis business open late at night anywhere in the vicinity of residential areas. And it's it's just curious. We don't talk about cannabis the same way we talk about alcohol. That's true. Or uh, or shoes or shoes, <laughs> even really bad, horrendous, ugly shoes. Yeah, it's it's true. Yeah. Uh, now, in February, um, which is uh, some of the, the last numbers that that we've uh, officially reported, the region saw a 6.4% increase in non-farm jobs uh, over the past year. With the strongest job gains in the leisure and hospitality industries, you kind of alluded to that earlier. And we talked a little bit about the great resignation when workers left their jobs in high numbers over the course of 2021 during the midst of the deadliest waves of COVID-19 cases. Some employers boosted pay and other perks. Others made concessions on schedules and workplace conditions to try to, to improve the health and safety of the staff. Um, what more can you tell us about that, Algernon? Right. Health and safety of the staff is really really important. I think, I think one, uh, one job position we can move to is actually, we can talk about nurses. Uh, nurses are, have just consistently been, um, you know, one of the, one of the most eagerly sought positions in the workforce. This is true in New Mexico where medical staffing shortages predate the pandemic. Um, but it also predates the pandemic nationwide. So it, it's, it's, it's a curious thing before the pandemic, the problem was is that more nurses were retiring or aging towards retirement than were graduating from nursing schools. And this was and the looming sort of rolling boulder was the baby boom population aging, needing a lot more health care services. Exactly. The same 
at the same time that you know, the nursing population was shrinking. So that was bad. And then COVID-19 arrives and fills up our hospitals with very sick patients with a dangerous infectious disease. And it was just like a bomb going off in and, this and keeps other patients um, from going into hospitals and seeking treatment that may be elective surgeries, but maybe, you know, like uh, regular checkups. Exactly. For two years, uh, undiagnosed conditions, untreated chronic conditions, people were avoiding the hospitals. And now we have this interesting situation in New Mexico where we actually have very few people in the hospital with COVID-19, but our hospitals are still full and some of them are still at overcapacity and these are non-COVID admissions. That's a serious, so there's still a strain on our hospital network. It's just doesn't look like wards full of COVID-19 patients anymore at the moment. Right. Um, talk to us about the, the, um, the recruiting event that you went to, uh, when was that last Wednesday? Yes. So the, uh, so in El Paso, there's a, uh, a network of hospitals. It's called the Hospitals of Providence, and they, own, uh, they operate several hospitals in El Paso. They came over to Las Cruces and set themselves up on the patio of a uh, brewery right across the street from the New Mexico State University campus where there is a school of nursing. And they were having a recruiting event for uh, the student nurses who are going to be graduating next week and basically saying, hey, come on by. We'll feed you. We'll buy you a beer. And we want to talk to you about being a nurse at Hospitals of Providence. They are offering competitive compensation packages and benefits packages uh, commiserate with experience for recently graduated nurses. They could get a job at the Hospitals of Providence and sign on with a $30,000 sign on bonus. But you know what's interesting, Damien, is I was talking to the I talked to Alexa Doig, who is the head of the nursing school, as well as um, one of the nursing students who came and checked out the opportunity and money was not the first thing on their minds, although they certainly are not opposed to money. Money is nice. Uh, But they were much more concerned about the orientation process, mentorship. Am I going to get thrown out onto the floor right away? Will I get to work with a preceptor for a few weeks before I'm on my own as a nurse? Um, That sort of these sort of working conditions and training conditions and how I start my career really was trumping the conversation about money. It's easy to sort of put a figure next to a dollar sign and say that's the story, but that's not necessarily what's on the graduates' minds. Yeah, if you don't feel safe, you know, or or like you can go into a job and do an adequate job on day one and you, you need that orientation, you need you need to become acclimated before you just get thrown onto the floor and given a patient. Absolutely. Which is what was happening during COVID-19 when there was just so much desperation for nurses. It was just like, you know, know, good luck. Hail Mary. Out you go. Um, And so hospitals of Providence is saying, oh, no, no, you get, you know, you'll get 
eight to 10 weeks with a, with a preceptor and a mentor. I mean, they, you really want to start it out right. You want to be safe and, and you want, you know, you, you want you want to be as well prepared as you can be before you're responsible for taking care of patients remember that burnout is one of the most significant factors and why so many people are leaving this profession early exactly and i i suspect that we'll probably see a lot of studies come out in the uh, coming years about how those particular nursing conditions that were brought on you know as a as kind of out of necessity during the the onset of the COVID-19 crisis, how they they led to patient outcomes. Yeah, that's correct. But, you know, the hospitals are also that but they are investing in recruitment. And that's part of this story, too. Um, I I looked around at what some of the other hospital networks in New Mexico are doing about this. New Mexico, of course, famously, I mean, just, you know, uh, and it just short on doctors, short on specialists and very short on nurses uh, for a know, long, I, long I, time for a very long time. It's, it's just systemic and baked in it seems. And so what are they doing about this? And it's interesting. I, one thing I'll note is that the parent company that owns Mountain View Regional Medical Center here in Las Cruces, and they, they're based in Tennessee and they own hospitals around the country. Uh, they're investing $40 million in a number of financial incentives uh, for new nurses and other employees, including, uh, you know, if you stay on and you're successful, we'll pay off up to $20,000 of your student loans. That's tuition reimbursement. And they have tuition. That's on top of tuition reimbursement programs and sign-on bonuses and other things that they do. Yeah. Also, employee referrals are becoming very lucrative. And so uh, uh, Mountain View and, and other hospitals in that network, uh, there's $5,000 employee referrals. Wow. If you know somebody really good and you can refer them and we hire them on, you know, we're going to pay you that recruiting fee. That could be a full time job if you if you know a whole lot of nurses. <laughs> Now, um, data, you referred to data you examined from uh, Workforce Solutions that indicates Las Cruces area unemployment is actually lower than it was before the health emergency started, before COVID-19 came to town and kind of brought the uh, state's economic activity to a, to a screeching halt, triggering layoffs and spikes in employment. What more can you say about that? Well, yeah. Um, so, you know, the um, I think in February um, we were at five point six percent and the national rate was three point six percent. Right. So, I mean, definitely higher than the rest of the country. And some parts of the state um, have recovered more quickly than others. And then, of course, you have uh, some counties like Luna County, a very rural county where there's not a whole lot of non-farm economic development is always in double digit unemployment. And, you know, that trend has not changed. But um, uh, even so, you know, in the Las Cruces area, the down here near the border, near El Paso, uh, where there's you know recently been some new economic investment in Santa Teresa and Sunland Park um, and some improvements at ports of entry, allowing for you know more commerce across 
the border with Mexico. You know, there's actually unemployment in the Las Cruces area is actually rebounded to a pre-pandemic level, if not even a little bit lower. And, um, you know, that's a good sign. Erickson told me that New Mexico's unemployment is actually recovered at about the same pace as the national rate, even though the bare numbers, the bare number looks a lot higher. Our recession in 2020, that really bad 2020, you know, COVID-19 pandemic when we were in the real shutdown area of era of the of the emergency. Um, You know, New Mexico had a little bit of a buffer because of our energy market and that's oil and gas. And that's also, uh, you know, the the burgeoning renewable energy market. Wind and solar. Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, so we we had some buffer against that because we produce so much energy. It still hit us really hard. And unemployment, of course, was, you know, did that vertical climb. Um, but, the, but but our dip was a little more shallow than than other places saw. Yeah, that declining line, if you picture it that way, was was a little bit more shallow, which is not to understate the extent of the damage that it did. But it does Um, make it easier to pull out of. I think so. And especially and it was, you know, it was led by oil and gas just because we're so dependent on that industry. And when it really rebounded, um, the state, of course, got a lot more revenue and it was able to move some of that gain into programs that helped out taxpayers impacted by the recession, as well as moving some of the federal relief dollars. I mean, this was, you know, we are seeing some economic impacts from the extent to which government money has been used to help pay out people, to 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 help buffer the effects of the of the pandemic in the form of, you know, individual payments, tax rebates, uh, child support payments for people, um, Rent. you know, rent moratoriums and things like that. Uh, right. Utility shutoffs. Exactly. And, you know, politically that those moves have been controversial, but economically they really buffered against going into an all out economic depression. Uh, yeah. Um, and student, student loan repayments for that matter. Right. And, you know, it's the, with that, that's really interesting because it's really opened this national conversation about to what extent the student loan debt is just itself a drag on the economy because trillions of dollars nationwide are tied into student debt. Um, President Biden, of course, was resistant to the idea of doing much loan forgiveness, but he's been certainly willing to put payments on hold while people are re- recovering from the pandemic recession. That's absolutely right. What sort of things should we be looking for as we move forward? Well, you know, I we're 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 seeing these support payments and 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 various programs start to get phased out. Um COVID-19 is now being treated as an endemic disease that is less dangerous in terms of hospitalizations and sicknesses, although you know, I mean, that narrative itself is controversial because we still have a lot of people getting sick and some of them are going to the hospital and some of them are having long term health effects, which, of course, affects their ability to participate in the economy. Either and some of them are dying. Of course. And, Certainly. you know, that that impacts their ability to be consumers or workers in the economy. Um, there are employers that are 
advertising for jobs. There's certainly there is a job market there and workers have, uh, you know, in some industries more than others, they they have some position to really talk to employers about pay as well as working conditions, hours. Can we work from home more? Um, you know, how do how do I do that? Can I drive less? Can I be in a crowded office less? I think that the response to the pandemic has opened up our imaginations to what is possible about that. And I think the impact that that's going to have on the commercial real estate market is also interesting and it is a, a chapter that has yet to be written. Absolutely. Let's 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 pull let's pull back the curtain on our own newsroom. So for exactly. two years, the, the Las Cruces Sun News uh, headquarters in downtown Las Cruces has been effectively closed for two years. We're just starting to our company is just starting to open that back up. Reporters have been reporting. Reporting remotely, there are co-workers that I have seen perhaps two times in person in the last two years. And, you know, from uh, I, I, don't, I don't want to give our employer any ideas, Damien, but, you know, you could look at this and say, well, is it really necessary to uh, rent or lease a building? Do we need to own properties? I mean, are there ways that we can move reporters into more remote locations and not and, and reduce some of the overhead? Um, at the same time, though, the reporters reporting from home are donating their home Internet service to the company. And so those are things that would need to be addressed and worked out. And, uh, I, and think I think other workplaces have similar have similar questions to work out. I think two or three of our sister papers have moved during the pandemic, have changed office spaces, presumably to downsize rather than upsize. Absolutely. You know, a, a lot of businesses have really, you know, like the newspaper industry and other industries where much more of the commerce is taking place online. There's a there's some new thinking about whether a brick and mortar operation is necessary or at what scale uh, that needs to be. Absolutely. Is there anything else, Algernon, that you want to add that we haven't gone into? Boy, gosh, this conversation is this conversation we've had has simultaneously spread across multiple sectors of the economy. And yet I feel as though we just barely started. Yeah, yeah, you you can only scratch the surface. It's a really rich, rich economy right now. Uh, And it may sound strange because there's so much pain and suffering (laughs) that is still um, that is still taking place. And yet uh, it's such a dynamic an interesting field. And of course, we're just going to keep doing our best to understand it and explain it to our audience. I think that one of the things we're going to have to take a closer look at as uh, particularly if it if it persists is inflation and the role it's playing locally. Yes, inflation, certainly the effects, the effect it has on the flow of cash, as well as the effects it has on policy, because policymakers have very different views of of how much of a threat inflation is in the short term. And as inflation grows, you're already seeing it in our politics. Um, And there's one school of thought that says we need to pull back on public sector spending and government investments, uh, you know, to counteract inflation. And then there's another 
another school of political thought that says inflation is the price you pay for mitigating human suffering and that, you know, uh, and, and then you move forward and make adjustments once the crisis is passed. And, and of course, that poli- but yeah. a portion of that has has also been driven by supply supply chain issues and uh, the the Russian war against Ukraine and like there are there are layers and layers and layers and layers of factors that that go far beyond the current interest rates right now. The other thing that that will play in. You know, if this persists and and interest rates rise, will be the cost of buying a home or buying a new car or buying a used car, um, which have already been impacted. So, or investing in a business, right? I mean, you're gonna you need a business loan to to purchase a business. And yeah, you- the the cost of borrowing money. So there, are, this could play out in any number of ways. Yeah, and so. I yeah. Where does that leave us? I guess uh, <laughs> we're going to be we're going to be grappling with it, trying to understand it and report it clearly. Yeah. Well, Algernon, thanks for taking some time to to share your reporting with us this week. Always a pleasure. Someday we'll be actually doing these in person again. Maybe we've got a room for that at the uh, Sun News office. Yes, we do. It's still here. I, I can attest. <laughs> Algernon is actually in the Sun News office right now. Yeah, I'm actually in the conference room at the Sun News. Um, some days I'm in Deming at my home and some days I'm in Las Cruces. It's It's been an interesting workplace for the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks again, Algernon. Uh, it's always a pleasure and you always you have a way of explaining things so clearly. And, and I appreciate the clarity you bring. Well, thanks. Always a pleasure, Damien. Now, before we go, I'd like to take a few minutes to introduce our listeners to Meg Potter, the newest addition to our newsroom. Meg is a talented photojournalist who's covered a wide range of stories for several communities, but we'll have her tell us about that. So, Meg, thanks for uh, joining us to kind of introduce yourself to our listeners. We appreciate it. Yeah, of course. First, uh, let's just kind of start with where you grew up uh, and and where your travels have taken you so far. Yeah, uh, so um, I'm a desert native. I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. I was born and raised there. I went to high school and college there. Um, I graduated from Arizona State University in May of 2021. And... Um, this past year, I've uh, I've been interning in two different states. I've spent um, May through December in Wyoming and Jackson Hole next to the Grand Teton National Park. And that was definitely a treat to be living that close Burr. to nature. Yeah. That and, sounds um, cold. It Well, luckily enough, I got to dodge the winter. So I mostly was there for spring and fall, which was just really beautiful, even though fall was very cold for me as, as, a, <laughs> as, as someone a, uh, from the desert. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then um, right before I moved to Las Cruces, I was... Um, I was in Michigan. I was in a place called Jackson, Michigan, and I was working for MLive, which is a media group who owns a couple of newspapers out there. 
Um, and now I'm here in Las Cruces, and I'm very happy to be back in the desert. I I can imagine both of those sound cold. Um, so cold. I was I was looking at some of uh, your work on your website, uh, which uh, listeners can can find it at uh, megpotter.com and was really impressed with the photos I saw. You you also state that photojournalism allows you to merge two important passions, the ability to challenge your creativity daily and telling stories of people who are from underserved communities. How, how does it do this and why is that important to you? Yeah. Um, that's a great question. Uh, I've always been a really creative person. Um, I, I came to photography before I came to, before I, became a photojournalist. I didn't, you know, I kind of, I found my way to journalism through photography. Um, so just being able to, you know, photograph something new every different, every day is, uh, really, it's really amazing. Um, and what I like a lot about photojournalism more than I like about photography is that I get to meet people from all walks of life and um, the mission of journalism to me is to help tell people's stories and um, getting to meet people from all different walks of life and um, help them tell their story and really connect with their community is what journalism is all about for me. And really, particularly in your role, you really don't know when you wake up in the morning, maybe more days than not, what your day is going to look like, who you're going to meet, what stories you're going to help tell. You know that maybe on Thursday or Friday or Saturday night, you might be out shooting some kind of sports thing. But other than that, you know, it's really hard to, to know when you wake up exactly what you're going to be walking into. And, and then you add onto that breaking news and things really get interesting. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it can be, it can be stressful, but I kind of, I thrive off of it and, you know, just being able to experience something new every day is just such a treat, especially since, you know, most people kind of have the same, they do the same thing over and over again. I just feel very thankful to be doing something so exciting. Yeah. And, and it really is, it really is an exciting, exciting job. Tell me a, a little bit about your first week on the job. Um, some of the stories that you were able to cover. So far, my first week has consisted of meeting a lot of really interesting people for features. Um, my first assignment here, I met a man named Brian and his dog plays it <laughs> and they wear it. They like sport matching sunglasses and walk around downtown and say hi to everyone. So he's kind of like a local character. 
And that was really fun. And yesterday I met a woman named Anita who was in a boating accident in 1972 and it almost cost her her right leg, but um, she miraculously survived and the doctor was able to save her leg entirely. And since then she's like become a marathon runner and she's planning on doing um, an Ironman in Portugal in a few months. And that was, she was, a, that's, she was awesome. That's insane. Right. That's and that's berserk. I know. Yeah. And that's what I mean. But like, it's never ever the same thing. You get to meet so many different kinds of people. Like it's, it's such a, yeah. And then, joy. and then you shot Masia Valley pharmacy, mm-hmm. um, which yeah. is kind of, kind of, kind of in the throes of a, uh, 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 zoning battle with the city of Las Cruces over whether or not they can sell uh, medical cannabis, not recreational medical mm-hmm. cannabis because of their proximity to a school. Um, and you went out uh, trying to find splash pads. Yeah, no success yet, but I'm sure I'll catch someone this afternoon. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. The, yeah. Those will be, those will be fun pictures. Uh, it's that time of year again in Las Cruces. And you also went with Algernon last night to that, the nurse recruiting event that, that we also uh, talked about earlier in this episode. So I know you're just starting to get settled in, but what do you think of your uh, time in Las Cruces so far? Yeah, um, it's I've been here for seven days. I, I got here last Thursday and I I really love Las Cruces. I, like I said, I, I really miss the desert, even though Wyoming and Jack, uh, uh, Wyoming and Michigan were really pretty. I like love the, the hot weather and like the warm wind and the like always clear blue skies. It's just, it's lovely. I'm also very happy to be around like good Mexican food again Yay. <laughs> that in the Midwest. <laughs> so I'm still exploring, um, but it's just awesome. To yeah. Be back there's, in the there's uh, an embarrassment of riches uh, mm-hmm. when it comes to good Mexican food in Las Cruces. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, is there anything you'd like to add Meg that, that we haven't talked about? Hmm. Let me think. I mean, I'm just, I'm really excited to be a part of this community and to get to know everyone. And if anyone has any stories they think would make for a good photo story or a good video, they can, they can get in touch with me and I'd be happy to work with them. Well, thanks Meg. Thanks for uh, joining us today and, and welcome aboard. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Reporter's Notebook. We also have a free newsletter sharing reporters' stories about, well, about how we report stories. We hope you'll continue following all of these important stories and the rest of our reporting in the Las Cruces Sun News. A huge thanks goes out to Algernon and Meg for joining us this week. You can follow their reporting in the Las Cruces Sun News. Also, please subscribe to this podcast. Available on Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon Music, iHeart, TuneIn, Stitcher, and uh, most places you find your favorite podcasts. This has been the Reporter's Notebook. 
from the Las Cruces Sun News. I'm your host, Damian Willis. This week's podcast was written and produced by me. Please visit www.lcsun-news.com to read all our local reporting. Brought to you daily by reporters who live and work in Las Cruces. For all of us at The Sun News. Thanks for listening.